Well, good evening again, Hellos Church. My name is Andrew, and I do serve as one of the pastors here. I have the privilege of leading us through our study of the scriptures tonight. So if you have your Bibles, let me encourage you to grab them, turn open to Acts chapter 11 as we continue, continue our journey through this book that chronicles the birth of the church and the beginnings of the movement of the gospel throughout the world, a movement that you and I continue to be a part of today. So Acts chapter 11, as you're finding your way there, uh, let me ask you, what does it mean to be called a Christian? What does it mean to be called a Christian? Now, depending on who you ask, that will determine who, what answers you get because some people respond to that uh, very cynically and they might think, well, to be, be called a Christian is synonymous with being called bigoted or being called narrow-minded or being called uh, uh, bigoted, narrow-minded or something along those lines. Then there are others who view being called as a Christian kind of on a cultural, on a culturally, and they may say, well, being called a Christian is synonymous with being called a Republican, right? It means you vote that, because that's what all the census, the census and surveys that our country takes suggest, that those who label themselves Christians tend to vote in a certain direction, and so some people reduce their understanding of what it means to become a Christian to that dynamic. Then there are others who say, well, to be called a Christian means that you're someone who, uh, to put it simply, goes to church on Sunday, and by virtue of you being in this room right now means uh, to some people that that automatically means that you are a Christian. Now, of course, we would reject all of those definitions of Christian because some of them are very cynical, others are very cultural, and then there are some who are way too simplistic. So when we talk about what it means to be a Christian, we want to understand what it means to be a Christian uh, biblically or what the Bible presents to us about us who are living by faith in Jesus. And what you're going to find as we we'll journey through tonight's passage is that to be a Christian, uh, it can be stated in several ways, and a Christian may be defined in, with different words and in different ways, but the one I want to put before you tonight is a Christian is a person or a people in whom the grace of God finds expression. It is a person or a people in whom the grace of God finds expression. Now, I draw this understanding of what it means to be a Christian and really what it means to be a church, recognizing that a church isn't simply a place but a people, recognizing that a church isn't static but it is dynamic, recognizing that as followers of Jesus, as those who worship Jesus as Savior and Lord, that, that we do so in response to the grace that God has poured into our lives. When you look at this passage, there's a moment where a guy named Barnabas shows up in a city known as Antioch, and it's clear that the gospel has taken root in the lives of many people. And the gospel is producing fruit as a church has been birthed there that, there that will prove to be quite influential in the first century. And I love how it's described that when Barnabas stepped into the city, it says that he saw the grace of God. That God's grace wasn't something abstract, but God's grace was expressing itself in the lives of those who were believing the gospel and rallying around the gospel in worship to God and in obedience to Jesus. So I want us to think about what it means to be a Christian as someone in whom God's grace finds expression. Karl Barth put it this way, and that from a selection of a book called Reflections, he says that grace must find expression in life, otherwise it's not, it's not grace. That grace must find expression in life, otherwise it is not grace. Another way to say that is everything that, God, that grace touches, it transforms. Everything God's grace touches, it transforms, it changes in noticeable, visible, palpable kinds of ways. And so when we talk about what it means to be a Christian, we're talking about people in whom God's grace should find expression. 
And when we talk about what it means to be a church, we're talking about a people, a community in whom and through whom God's grace expresses itself. This is why if you've been a member or attending our church for a little while, you know that we are one church in three expressions. We don't refer to our congregations or uh, the various locations in which we are in a static way like a location or a campus. We use a dynamic word like expression because this is what a church is. A church is a people in whom God's grace is expressing itself in dynamic ways. And so I want you to look at this passage, and I just want to point out a few ways that God's grace expresses itself and recognizing that this is the dynamic that makes us unique. That this is what sets us apart as people in the city of Seattle. If grace isn't expressing itself in and through our lives, then something else is. And chances are those other things will fall into the categories of guilt, fear, and shame. Guilt, fear, and shame ordinarily expresses itself in the lives of those who are far from God or who do not yet know the grace of Jesus. And so that guilt, fear, and shame will express itself through all sorts of negative reactions and negative actions in this world, whether it be anger, whether it be bitterness, whether it be resentment, whether it be a refusal to extend forgiveness and those types of things, all kind of undergirded by guilt, fear, and shame. But what we're saying is that a Christian and a church is a people where grace is expressed as the, is the dominant expression in our lives. It doesn't mean that we won't wrestle with various forms of guilt, fear, and shame, but it does mean that as we grow as Christians, guilt, fear, and shame is going to express itself less often and with less intensity as we grow in our relationship with Jesus. But that's only going to happen when God's grace is taking its place. So let's talk about how God's grace expresses itself in our lives. I'll give you five things from this text, one of which is that grace expresses itself in difficult circumstances. That grace expresses itself in difficult circumstances. The passage begins in verse 19, the one that was read for us a moment ago. And notice how it starts. It says that there were some Christians who had been scattered as a result of, here it is, the persecution. And it was a persecution that started with a guy named Stephen. Now, if you remember back in Acts chapter 7, we have the story of Stephen bearing witness to Jesus. People didn't like it. They stoned him to death. And then in Acts chapter 8 verse 1, we're told that a persecution broke out in the city of Jerusalem, which was the center of God's church and God's kingdom and God's activity in the world was happening there. But when persecution began to fall, the church was scattered and it was spread throughout the known world. And some of the disciples fled to a place like Phoenicia. Now, Phoenicia was a 100-mile stretch along the Mediterranean sea coast of Syria. It was kind of in between Syria and the Mediterranean Sea, but then they also spread to a place called Cyprus. Now, Cyprus was an island south of Asia Minor. It was about 100 miles west of the northwestern part of Syria. So Cyprus was this island, and this is actually the place where Barnabas was from. This was his hometown. But then we are told that people also spread to Antioch. Now, Antioch is going to become the hub of all Christian activity in the book of Acts. Antioch is going to replace Jerusalem as far as the influence and the attention that it is getting in the book of Acts from this moment forward. And Antioch is a remarkably a remarkable place for this to happen as it becomes the hub for God's mission in the world. Antioch was the third largest city in the Greco-Roman world behind Rome and Alexandria. It had a population of about 500,000 people. It was 300 miles north of Jerusalem and about 30 miles east of the Mediterranean on uh, kind of inland. And 
And if you were looking on a map today and you're wondering, okay, where did this movement take place? Where was God's grace expressing itself in the first century? You would look to southeastern Turkey. That's where you're looking on the map to find this spot. Well, because it was a, the third largest city and it was a very transient place where people were moving in and moving out at a regular rate, you had major highways and thoroughfares that kind of ran through Antioch, bringing people from all over the world, which made Antioch a multicultural place, a multi-ethnic place. It made it a happening place as far as commerce and experiences and all these types of things. It was not entirely unlike the city of Seattle where people are moving in and moving out at a rapid race and there's all kinds of things to experience here. Well, that was Antioch then. A guy by the name of John Stott would summarize this moment. He says, there was no more appropriate place could be imagined either as the venue for the first international or multi-ethnic church in the world or as the springboard for worldwide Christian mission, saying Antioch was an incredibly strategic place for the gospel to continue to spread and the movement to continue in the world of the first century. Now, but think about how it happened. How did the gospel get to Antioch? Well, it didn't get to Antioch because people were obeying Jesus' command in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. When Jesus tells his disciples, there's coming a day when the Holy Spirit will be given to you and you will then be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. We've seen in Acts that the gospel kind of moving in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, but it hadn't moved into uh, the ends of the earth, so to speak. It hasn't crossed cultures into more Hellenistic societies and Hellenistic contexts. And so the gospel wasn't moving in that direction, but what happens in Acts chapter 7 and in Acts chapter 8 force the issue. And so what this means is that God's grace expresses itself in difficult circumstances, meaning God leveraged persecution to advance the gospel. The reason the gospel reached Antioch and the reason Antioch became such an influential place in the world was because of the persecution that started in the city of Jerusalem. So it's a remarkable thing that God would leverage that to advance his gospel. But not only do you find persecution here, at the end of the passage we're told in verse 27 that some prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them was named Agabus, and he stood up and he predicted by the Spirit that a famine was going to take place all throughout the Roman world. Now, we know that this happened during the reign of Claudius, and historians and scholars point to a, to a famine that struck the area in the mid-40s, and, and they kind of trace its origin all the way to Egypt, and they say, well... In Egypt, there was the Nile River that flooded in 45 AD, and when that flood happened, it kind of wrecked the grain supply that Egypt was providing the known world at that time. Egypt was the, considered the breadbasket of the world, and so everyone purchased their grains, and they got their food supply from Egypt, but this flood kind of wiped that out. It reduced the supply that Egypt had. And so with a, supply, with a reduced supply came increased prices because the demand remained the same. But nobody could afford it, and so famine began to wreak havoc all throughout the Roman world. Now, there was a government that was taking care of its citizens in different ways, but there was one particular segment of the population that was very vulnerable to this famine. One segment of the population that, wouldn't, that couldn't bank on the support of their government to care for them because they weren't willing to say what everybody else was saying. Everybody else would say, hey, Caesar, he's Lord. But there was a group in Jerusalem that was saying something completely different. They were saying, no, Caesar's not Lord. Jesus is Lord. And that confession put them in a vulnerable position because the Roman government wasn't running to their aid and providing a limited supply for that group. So if anybody kind of got 
overlooked, it would have been the Christians in Jerusalem and the Christians in the first century who were touting Jesus is Lord, not Caesar is Lord. And so what that means is the Christian church became dependent upon one another. And we're told at the end of the passage that the believers, these new Christians in Antioch, they took it upon themselves to rally their resources and send to Jerusalem so that the Christians in that city could be cared for. And this was a remarkable gesture because, remember, one of the biggest challenges in the first century was trying to figure out, okay, how can a group of former Jewish people who are worshiping Jesus or a group of Jewish people who are worshiping Jesus and a group of Hellenistic Greco-Roman people who are worshiping Jesus, how can they come together and form a new people? And the unity of the church became one of the biggest challenges the church faced in the first century. But here in this moment where God's grace is at work, You have this church in Antioch rallying their resources to give to their Jewish brothers and sisters, people that were quite different from themselves, but they were sharing Jesus in common. So what that means is is that not only did God leverage persecution to advance the gospel, it means that God leveraged a famine to unify the church. These two difficult situations, persecution and a famine, were pawns in the purposes of God. God in his sovereign grace was able to leverage these difficult circumstances towards the fulfillment of his purposes. That's what grace does. That's what a God of sovereign grace is able to do. And so what looked like apparent losses to the church were being persecuted or being scattered. We're not going to be together anymore. And what looked like a famine is struck. And because we're worshiping Jesus, we're really out when it comes to how people are being cared for. Uh, All this is happening. It seems like apparent losses. It seems like major threats to the purposes and the people of God in the world. But what is God doing? God is flipping the script on it. Because that's what grace does. Grace expresses itself in difficult circumstances. Grace does things that people do not expect when things get hard. The keynote example of that, of course, would be the cross of Christ. The cross of Christ is where the Son of God was persecuted. The Son of God was crucified. The Son of God, from an outsider's perspective, seems to have been defeated in that moment. But you and I know the know a much better story, don't we? That though he was crucified, he did not stay dead. He rose from the grave showing that God took the apparent loss of the cross and he leveraged it towards our salvation and our redemption and our good and his glory. And God is doing the same thing in this story, leveraging persecution, leveraging famine for his purposes to be fulfilled and his people to be served, advancing the gospel and unifying the church because grace manifests itself, expresses itself in difficult circumstances. Now, I don't know what difficult circumstances you're facing right now, but you are likely in various situations with various forms of difficulties, and you may be thinking that God's purposes are lost on you, that they are lost on you because of this or they are lost on you because of that, but understand that apparent losses to us serve as God's leverage. God leverages it all for his glory, our joy, and the good of those around us. This is what is happening in this story. This is why as Christians, we interpret the world differently. We interpret difficult circumstances differently. We don't see them as losses. We don't see them as ultimate threats to the purposes of God for us and the good of God in the world. No, we see apparent losses as God's leverage. 
And just as he leveraged the cross for our redemption, he leverages difficult circumstances time and time and time again for our good and the, advance, excuse me, the advancement of his kingdom. So God's grace expresses itself in difficult circumstances. This is what a God of sovereign grace does. But then notice grace expresses itself in gospel witness as well. After the people were scattered and they showed up in Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, it says at the end of verse 19 that they continued to speak the word. Now, there were some who were sharing the gospel to no one except Jews. But then when you get to verse 20, you find some people taking risks. And I love this part of the passage because we don't know who these guys are. They, they were mavericks in the faith. They were willing to do things that nobody had done up to that point, at least explicitly and with as much intentionality as they were trying to do. So although there were some who were only speaking the gospel to Jews because that's where they were comfortable, there were others who pressed themselves out of their comfort zone to share the gospel with people who were not like them, people they were unfamiliar with. And so we're told in verse 20 that these men from Cyprus and Cyrene, they came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks. They began to cross cultures to declare the gospel, to bear witness to Jesus. They were doing something that nobody was willing to do up to that point in time, at least not to the degree that they are doing it. And so they're expressing the gospel because grace expresses itself in gospel witness. And there's a lot of things that could be said about this, one of which is I want you to know that when they began to bear witness to the gospel and crossing cultures, I want you to notice how these guys loved people very, very well. They loved the Greeks very well. And they loved the Greeks very well in the sense that they chose the best language that would shrink the biggest gap between them in terms of their ability to understand what they were talking about. For example, up to this point, when Jews were sharing the gospel in Jewish contexts and with Jewish populations, they would declare Jesus is the Christ. And Christ was a Jewish category. Jewish people were very familiar with what that word meant. They were all anticipating the Christ or the Messiah or the anointed one. But when these men from Cyprus and Cyrene crossed cultures and began to bear witness to the gospel to the Greeks, they didn't start with Jesus is the Christ, although that is true. They led with Jesus is Lord. And that was a title, that was a descriptor that made sense to the Greek mind. It made sense to the Greco-Roman world because they were people who declared Caesar is Lord, he is king, he is ruler. They knew what it meant to submit to his authority. And so when these men from Cyprus and Cyrene crossed the culture culture and began bearing witness to these Greek men and women, they employed metaphors, they employed language, they employed an image that resonated with them, and that's a very loving thing to do. When you're bearing witness to the gospel, Love people enough to figure out what language would resonate best with them. Love people enough to figure out what metaphors would best convey the gospel in this context and to this culture and to these people. This is what the men from Cyrus and Cyrene are doing, and it is a remarkable example to us. But then another thing I love about this is that their names aren't recorded. They they live in anonymity and And the fact is, really, it doesn't matter who their names is because we know who did know their names. And when God knows your name, you you don't care about everyone else knowing your name. And so you have this beautiful picture of an anonymous group of mavericks crossing culture for the first time and saying, Jesus is Lord, sharing the gospel, bearing witness to the gospel to the Greeks' people. Now, why would they do that? Well, they would do this because they knew that the gospel was actually good news. 
And you know as well as I do that good news is worth expressing. It's worth articulating. This is why when a couple gets engaged, they blast it on social media. This is why when a couple has a child, they blast it on social media. And they make sure everybody knows the good news of what just went down in their lives because we want to share good news. Well, this is what's going down here. These, these believers from Jerusalem have stepped into this context, but they're still, they still have the memory and the life-changing experience they had from hearing the gospel there. And they're bringing it into this new life, in this new city, in this new place. A couple of years ago, I took my son to the Great Wolf Lodge. I took all of my kids, but it really made an impact on Asher's life. So that we went to the Great Wolf Lodge. If you don't know what it is, it's a very expensive place to go and hang out for a couple of days. And it's a big indoor water park with a scavenger hunt that's driven by wands and all these types of things. And Asher loved it. It left a deep impression on him. This was two years ago, the first time we went. He hasn't stopped talking about it since. We went back this last year because we had an opportunity to do so, and it just continued to bolster his love for the Great Wolf Lodge and the joy that he experienced in that moment. And when he got back, he hasn't stopped talking about it, and he's telling everyone about it. There's a little girl in his kindergarten class, Vivian. She's actually a member of our church, Jason and Kelsey Mall's daughter. And he tells Vivian about the Great Wolf Lodge every day. To the point where it's driving Vivian crazy. And one day, they, they, they were sitting down for dinner, the Mall family, and Kelsey pulled out her camera and just began recording Vivian. And Vivian was just like, Asher keeps talking about the Great Wolf Lodge. Why? I don't even know what that is. I wish he'd stop talking about the Great Wolf Lodge. But, but he couldn't stop talking. He can't do it. Because he's experienced something that's affected him deeply, and he's going to bring that experience to bear in his conversations and in his interactions with other people. Well... The same can be said for the Christian who's experienced the grace of God. You know something far better than the Great Wolf Lodge. You know something called the grace of God. And, and the grace of God isn't expensive. It's free. The grace of God is a gift to be given to those who look to Jesus and say, Jesus, I want you. And Jesus like, you can have me. And you're like, what do I have to do, Jesus? And Jesus is like, nothing. Just receive me. Believe in me. Trust in me. Give your life to me. I want to be everything you need and then some. And, and you begin to experience that, the impact of God's grace in your life in that way. And as you grow in that reality, you, you want to express it. Because grace expresses itself in what's called gospel witness, where we talk about good news and we believe the gospel that Jesus is Lord is good news. And the reason why that's good news is because who else do you want to be Lord? Do you want to take up that mantle of responsibility? Do you really want to bear the weight of your life, much less the weight of the world on your shoulders because you are living as though you are Lord? Do you really want the, to give that title to any other earthly person right now? Do you want a president to carry that for you? Do you want a boss to carry that for you? Or do you want the one who actually is Lord to carry it for you? Becoming a Christian is surrendering to that reality. And though as you experience that dynamic, your life begins to change and you begin to, and grace begins to express itself in the way that you are submitting to Jesus, obeying Jesus, trusting Jesus, loving Jesus, believing in Jesus. John Bunyan had a really hard time believing that he was loved by God. He was a pastor in the 16th century and, or 17th century, and he just had a really hard time believing that God would forgive him of his sins. He had a very sensitive conscience. 
And it took him a while to put his faith in Jesus because he just did not believe that he could be loved and forgiven. And, and then one day he decided, okay, I'm just going to think about what the gospel says. I'm just going to think about what the gospel says. I'm going to rehearse the gospel over and over and over in my mind. And so he did that. He gave his life, he gave his, his mental energy towards rehearsing the gospel over and over and over again. And as he did so, it was as though God's voice began to take the words and, and shift them in a direction that spoke directly to him as he was thinking, this, this is what happened. I began to give place to the gospel, which with power did over and over make this joyful sound within my soul. You are my love, you are my love, and nothing shall separate you from my love. Over and over and over again, you are my love, you are my love, nothing shall separate you from my love. You are my love, you are my love, and nothing shall separate you from my love. Meditating upon that to the point when the Spirit dropped it into his heart. And he had a moment when his heart was filled full of comfort and hope. And he believed that his sins should be forgiven. But get this, he was so taken with the love and mercy of God that he could not tell how to contain it until he got home. So he says, I thought I could have spoken of his love and mercy to me, even to the very crows that sat up on the plowed lands before me, had they been capable to, under, to have understood me. He's saying, I'm so taken by this truth that I have to share it, and I will speak it even to crows if I have to. It's a beautiful dynamic as the gospel moves from your head to your heart and you begin to think about how you are loved, you are forgiven, you are prized, you are cherished, you are wanted by God. That clicks something within you so that you begin to share it as good news for other people. You want other Vivians, so to speak, to experience that good, that good news. And so grace expresses itself in gospel witness but then we go on grace expresses itself in encouragement i love this portion of the passage in verse 22 after news reached the church in jerusalem they sent an emissary named barnabas to antioch and when he arrived in verse 23 it says that he saw the grace of god he was glad and encouraged all of them to remain true to the lord with devoted hearts barnabas stepped onto the scene in this moment and he sees the expressions of God's grace in that city, and he encourages it. He doesn't discourage it. He encourages what God was doing in that city. He does not discourage it. He doesn't say, okay, you guys aren't Jewish, so you have a little bit more to learn. You're, you're a little rough around the edges, and so let me start by kind of making you move more towards a Jewish understanding of what it means to believe in Jesus, not what he did. He didn't discourage in that way. He encouraged these new believers saying, look, what you need most in this moment isn't so much a theology lesson, as important as those lessons are, what you need in this moment is encouragement. And we would say the same to every new believer, every new disciple, every maturing Christian. Look, what we need, what we cannot live without is encouragement. Now, a person becomes a Christian. Yes, there are things for them to learn. We have a lot to learn. I'm a theology guy. I like teaching theology. I like teaching the Bible. And when we become Christians, we have so much to learn. But understand that he didn't sit them down in a classroom and begin to teach systematic theology. What he does was he, what he did was he took the time to encourage them, hey, maintain your heart's devotion to the Lord. And he encourages them to press on. Why do you think that is? Well, I suspect it's because like most people who come to faith in Jesus who are excited about what God's grace is doing within them. 
There's a lot of emotion that can be attached to that. There's a lot of feelings that can come along with that. And Barnabas has been walking with Jesus long enough to know that, hey, as you journey through this world, this devotion that you're showing to Jesus, it's not always going to feel like it does right now. There are going to come moments and stretches when life gets hard. The world around you won't be hospitable to you. There are coming moments when the world is not going to applaud your devotion to Jesus. And it is in those moments when you need You need encouragement. You need courage to be infused into your faith so that you don't give up when those realities hit. And so he takes the time to encourage their devotion because he says, look, you know, as followers of Jesus, we don't live by feelings. We live by faith. And our faith needs encouragement. One of the most necessary ministries you give to each other in this church is the ministry of encouragement. Life in this world is discouraging in and of itself. You're going to be discouraged from everywhere else in this world. But when it comes to the company of the redeemed, when it comes to your relationship with Jesus, there's no room for you to be discouraging to each other. What we must be is encouraging of each other. We want to infuse courage into one another's faith so that we can remain our heart's devotion to the Lord. Encouragement is something that no disciple can live without, so we want to be quick to encourage. When we see God's grace expressing itself in one another's lives, let's call it out, let's identify it, let's speak truth to it. Because the word coming from your mouth is oftentimes stronger than the word that might be in conflict in my own heart. And so I need a word coming from you to dislodge that so that I can believe what I believe and live what I've been called to live and do what I've been called to do because your words are serving me in that way as you encourage me and vice versa. So I would encourage you, as you, even when we gather into this space on a weekly basis, would you view this as an opportunity not only for you to draw near to God in song and to draw near to God through his word, view this as an opportunity for you to draw near to one another. When you step into this moment, think about how you can minister to each other, how you can encourage one another, how you can pray for one another. Because encouragement is a way in which God's grace expresses itself. It is a gift that we all all need. Now, one of the definitions I love for grace is, is that God's grace is his energizing kindness. His grace towards us is his kindness that energizes us. And just think about how that can flow from you and through you and into the life of another as you show an energizing kindness towards one another. As the Holy Spirit fills you up and impresses upon you words to share and truths to highlight and and evidences of grace to call out and you begin to speak into one another's lives in that way, it, it makes all the difference to our endurance. But then there comes another fourth dynamic. God's grace expresses itself in encouragement then God's grace expresses itself also in Christ-like character. You get to this when you get to verse 25. There's a moment when Barnabas leaves and he goes to Tarsus to search for Saul, the the guy who met Jesus in Acts chapter 9. Saul, who's also known as Paul, who would write a lot of the New Testament and who would be the the keynote apostle or missionary to uh, the Greco-Roman world, that this is that Saul, it's that guy, and he brings him back to the church at Antioch, and they spend a year together meeting with the church and teaching large numbers. But notice this phrase at the end of verse 26. It says, the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. If you've ever wondered where the word Christian came from, this is where it came from. 
It was first used at Antioch as Christians were being labeled that way. Now, scholars are in agreement that that label wasn't a kind label at first. It was used in a derogatory fashion because people who were outside of the church saw these people saying Jesus is Lord, but they knew Jesus' story or they knew part of it. They knew that Jesus died on a cross, and so in their mind, they're thinking, well, Jesus lost, and you're worshiping him. You're going to lose too. You're a little Christ. You're a little loser, so to speak. But you know the whole story. You know how God has a tendency to take apparent losses and leverage them for incredible purposes. And so Jesus, yes, he was crucified, but Christians believe that he resurrected, that he came back to life, which is why we say he is Lord, which is why we trust in him and follow him and worship him. And so this name, although it might have started as a derogatory slight, you're a bunch of losers, it became something that people wanted to embrace because literally it means little Christ. And they're saying, you want to call me a little Christ? I'm all about it because that means there's something in me that's happening, that, that's reminding you of Jesus, that's reminding you of Christ. And that's exactly who I want to be. I want to be a Christian. I want to be a little Christ. I want to be someone who reminds the world of what Jesus is like. And so God took this derogatory Slight, and he flipped the script on it and it became something useful. It became something profitable. It became the label that the first generation of Christ's followers would, would go by. And we still refer to ourselves as Christians today, and we love that label because it means literally little Christ. And that's what being a disciple is all about. Growing as a disciple, maturing in your faith, means that you are becoming a little Christ. It means that God's grace is working in you in such a way to make you a little more humble, to make you a little more holy, to make you a little more patient, a little more kind, a little more merciful, a little more forgiving, a little more loving, a little more generous, that God's grace is working within you to make you more like Christ. And so this is a label that we love. But we recognize that this is a label that some people self-identify with. There are many people who self-identify as a Christian. You take a census in this country. There are lots of people who self-identify as Christians. But what's more important than a person self-identifying as a Christian is when people around them begin to apply this label to them because they're seeing the reality of Christ in their lives. And God's grace is expressing itself in visible, noticeable, tangible ways. So you might self-identify as a Christian, but... We don't really put a lot of stock in self-identification. You can self-identify as anything, especially in this country. But what matters is whether or not others are saying, hey, God's grace is at work in you. This is how you are growing. This is how you're reminding me of Jesus. This is how you are becoming more Christ-like. That's what discipleship is. That's the life of being a Christian. It's this journey. It's this process of becoming more like Christ. And when you find that happening... That's the result of God's grace, energizing change in your life. Alexander the Great, you know him no doubt. When he, there was a time at once when he learned there was a guy in his army that went by his namesake that also went by the name Alexander. That was an intimidating thing because Alexander the Great had conquered the world by age 23. He had done a lot of big things. He was a big, imposing, intimidating guy. And, and he met this guy one day and he called him to himself and said, hey, is your name Alexander? And Am I your namesake, or are you named after me? And, and what was strange is that this soldier had a reputation for being a coward. He had a reputation for being a coward, and when Alexander the Great asked him this question, his response was, uh, yes, sir, my, my name is Alexander. I, I was named for you. And then the great general replied to him, said, well, 
then either be brave or change your name. (laughs) Either be brave or change your name. Now, Jesus doesn't say that to us. He does tell us to be brave. He does tell us to live out our union with him. But he's not quick to tell us to change our name because he knows that we need encouragement, not discouragement. He knows that we need time, not instant pot Christianity. He knows that we need a journey with him in relationship to become more like him. And so we've been given the name Christian because it conveys our identity as as those who are becoming like Christ, and God's grace is producing that over the course of our days. And then lastly, the final way in which grace expresses itself in this passage, and there's a lot more when you consider everything in the scriptures, but the fifth one is this. Grace expresses itself in what's called sacrificial generosity. Sacrificial generosity. When the famine struck and Christians were vulnerable and they were suffering and struggling, verse 29 Each of the disciples, that is all the believers who were in Antioch, according to his ability, determined, resolved to send relief to the brothers and sisters who lived in Judea. And they did this by sending it to the elders by means of Barnabas and Saul. Barnabas and Saul, a lot of their missionary journey was really collecting money from churches and food and supplies from churches and then bringing it to hurting Christians in other places. That was a lot of what they were doing. And so what you find here is God's grace expressing itself in sacrificial generosity because when people started hurting, God's people rallied to help. And we're told that each one did it, and they did it according to their ability, and they determined to send relief to hurting Christians. This is an expression of grace in a person's life. This is an expression of grace in a church's life. It's called sacrificial generosity. It's when we're willing to leverage our time, talents, and yes, our treasures towards helping people in the church and beyond that to those outside the church believing in the parable of the Good Samaritan as well. But what I want you to do is think about how this is an expression of grace. Saul, Paul would later write about this collection that he would be bringing to other places in a book called 2 Corinthians. And there he's encouraging uh, the people in Corinth to give in similar ways, to exercise sacrificial generosity and listen to how he does so. He says, we want you to know, brothers and sisters, about the grace of God that was given to the churches in Macedonia. Now, he says this grace was given to the churches in Macedonia. During a severe trial brought about by affliction, their abundant joy and their extreme poverty overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Grace was expressing itself through their generosity. I can testify that according to their ability and even beyond their ability of their own accord, they begged us earnestly for the privilege of sharing in the ministry of the saints, ministry to the saints. And not just as we had hoped. Instead, they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us by God's will. So we urged Titus that just as he had begun, so he should also complete among you this act of grace. Now, what is that act of grace? Well, it was the act of reaching into their pockets and giving to a pool of money that would go to help hurting Christians in Jerusalem. This grace is synonymous with sacrificial generosity, with financial contribution to the support of the church, the relief of the hurting in the world. That is a way in which God's grace expresses itself. And and the reason why we want to see this is God's grace given to those who are being generous is because sacrificial generosity isn't simply something God wants from you. It's what he wants for you. Giving to help support the work of the gospel in the world and to help support hurting Christians and hurting people in the world, giving in that direction isn't something God wants 
for you. It's what he wants from you. No, I'm sorry. It's not what he wants from you. It's what he wants for you in the sense that when grace begins to express itself in this way, you find your heart being less dependent upon what you have. And you find your heart becoming more dependent upon the reality of Jesus in you and the reality of Jesus for you. Sacrificial generosity, when you begin to exercise faith in this direction, it, it protects you from being possessed by your possessions. And it teaches you that Jesus is enough for you. Anytime you exercise sacrificial generosity and you give of your resources in these ways, you do become more vulnerable. You do become less than what you were before you gave it. But as disciples who are growing in grace, we recognize that we are able to do so because though we may become more vulnerable in other people's eyes, we may become more vulnerable even in our own, uh, when we just put down numbers on paper in this world, we, we find ourselves discovering that Jesus is enough for us even then. That Jesus has this uncanny, uncanny ability to meet us where we are most vulnerable and to showcase that he is enough for us no matter where we are or when we are in this world. This is why it was a poor church in Macedonia that was giving to participate in the ministry to the saints. The church in Macedonia had a reputation for not having a lot. But they were willing to give because God's grace was expressing itself in this way. And so I would encourage you to consider how God's grace expresses itself in sacrificial generosity. A guy by the name of Charles Ryrie put it this way, our love for God may be proved by something that is a major part of everyone's life, and that is the use of our possessions. How we use our possessions demonstrates the reality of our love for God. In some ways, it proves our love more consciously than depth of knowledge, length of prayers, or prominence of service. He says those things can be faked. We can fake those things, but what you cannot fake is sacrificial generosity. The use of our possessions shows us up for what we actually are. This is why there's such a unique bond between God's grace and the giving of the church in the New Testament. You can fake a lot of things in Christianity, but you cannot fake sacrificial generosity. You can staple evidences of grace onto your life in the form of ministry involvement and going to church and doing all these types of things, but you can't staple sacrificial generosity. That's raw and real in your life. And the good news of this passage, as it's all anchored in the grace of God, his energizing kindness towards us, that, that this sacrificial generosity isn't something that we take up and do on ourselves. It's something that we take up and do in response to what Jesus has done for us. It's because God has given so kindly to us that we want to give so kindly to others. It's because Jesus did everything necessary for our salvation that compels us to, to love and to serve everyone in light of this salvation, which means, hey, if I need to make a sacrifice, I'm going to make a sacrifice if it benefits you, if it blesses you. Hey, if I need to be made more vulnerable in this world so that you can be propped up, I'm going to be made more vulnerable in this world so that you can be propped up because this is what grace does in the life of God's people. Grace expresses itself in sacrificial generosity. Uh, this is why we as a church are devoting. Last year, we devoted 10% of everything that was given towards external giving, uh, missions and mercy and those types of things. This year, we're going to give 12% of everything that comes in. That's going to be our baseline this year. We, we always tend to go more than what we allot, but we're allotting a baseline of 12% 
of everything that is given in support of the church and in the advancement of the gospel in our church, 12% of it is automatically flagged to go out. It's flagged to go to support church planners like Daniel and Stephanie Englehart in Des Moines, Washington. It's going to help missionaries like Craig and Abby Hall who will be serving. It will go to support any other church planter that God may raise up and send out from among us or missionary that God may send up, raise up and send out among us. It will go to support hurting Christians in the world as well as hurting neighbors in the city. We are designating 12% of our total budget towards these types of causes because we want to be a people who, who exercise sacrificial generosity, believing that's how God's grace expresses itself in ordinary ways in our lives. This also means, this is also why there's some, church, some families in our church who've been praying hard for a while now about how they can set up a fund on top of that to support adoption ministry in the life of our church. People who are wanting to help families and people who want to adopt kids and to take care of the orphans in the world and they are putting together a fund and it's going to be, uh, we'll roll out the details in the coming couple of months as those details are being coming together, but know that they're coming because we have people who in whom God's grace is expressing itself. And God's grace is expressing itself in their sacrificial generosity as they are looking to support those who want to adopt and care for the orphans of the world. I'm really looking forward to 2020 and seeing how God's grace expresses itself in the life of our church. And my prayer as we transition from last year to this year is that God's grace would express itself more ferociously and more intensely than guilt, fear, and shame that may have expressed itself too much in 2019. And there's hope that that prayer will be answered because that's ultimately Jesus' desire and his passion for his people. That his grace towards us, as it touches us, it transforms us. And so let's grow in that direction together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you find us receptive and responsive to your grace towards us? I pray that as your grace touches us, that your grace would transform us. I pray that your grace would express itself loudly in our lives and loudly in our church. I, I pray that your grace would express itself when we meet difficult circumstances over the course of this year. I pray that we would not meet them as obstacles or as, as losses, but that we would see them the way you see them and that there is always hope that you can leverage hard stuff to make holy, happy things happen. And so would you please bring that about in our lives and in our church. God, we pray that your grace would express itself in our gospel witness, that we would be quick to share the good news with those around us, that we would talk about you as the love and Lord of our lives. We pray that your grace would express itself in encouragement, that we would become an encouraging people who ministers to one another with the words that we share and the prayers that we pray and the time that we give to one another. I pray that your grace would express itself in Christ-like character. Make us more like Jesus. Conform us more and more into his, his image that we would be more humble, that we would be more patient, more loving, more kind, more merciful, more generous. God, as a result of his character being shaped within us. And God, would your grace express itself in our sacrificial generosity? Would we love to give? Would we love to give in support of the church in the relief of the poor, and the advancement of the gospel in the world. God, let your grace work this within us. All in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.